0: There is a story in the Old Testament that I am quite certain that you are familiar with, especially if you grew up in Sunday school. It's one of those stories that in children's Sunday school classes, it's told year after year. You may not understand all of the theological truths or implications behind it, but I'm confident that you know the story itself. It ranks right up there with David and Goliath, but the story I'm talking about concerns Abraham and his son, Isaac, the son of the promise. After years of waiting on the son, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, finally have Isaac. And you can imagine the joy of finally seeing the promise that was fulfilled before their very eyes in spite of their advanced age. Now, we are not privy to the early years of Isaac's life. The Bible simply doesn't tell us but we sort of expect the credits to roll and the curtain to drop and this family to live happily ever after. And then there is a strange twist in the story, a twist that we have a hard time fully understanding. God tests Abraham by telling him to sacrifice his son, his only son, Isaac, the son of of the promise. And by this time, Isaac is at least a teenager, if not a few years older. In another strange part of that story, Abraham doesn't even seem to struggle with the command of God. At least as far as we know, in the narrative that we're given, Abraham simply gets up the next day and begins to obey. He gathers all of the things that he needs and He and his son Isaac and some servants set out on the journey to the mountains that God is going to direct him to. He was obedient, though surely along their way there must have been some doubts and questions in his own mind. Clearly there was in the mind of his son Isaac. But the part of the story I want to focus on this morning is, It's right about the time they're getting close to where they are going. They are close to the mountain to which God had directed them. And by now they've left their servants behind. And it is just the two of them, father and son, Abraham and Isaac. Abraham is about to follow through on God's command. And it is at this point that Isaac asked his father a very important question. One that certainly had personal application for his own life. Isaac said to Abraham, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? You see, in his mind and in his eyes, they had everything they needed except one key crucial thing, and that was the sacrifice itself. Abraham answered his son by saying, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And of course, you know the rest of the story. You know that God indeed did do that. Abraham did not sacrifice his son Isaac, but instead there was a ram caught by his horns in a thicket, and that ram was sacrificed instead. God will provide the lamb for the sacrifice. That is what we are talking about today as we begin our focus on Christmas. We're going to spend three Sundays talking about what I'm calling Christmas confessions. Now, when we normally hear the word confession, we tend to think of confession of sin. But don't worry, we're not going to spend the next three weeks talking about the sins that you need to confess before Christmas arrives. Instead, I'm using that word confession in the sense of confessions of faith, making statements about what it is that we believe. So we're going to look at three confessions over these three Sundays. Two of the three are going to be issued by John the Baptist, and a third is going to be issued by Nathaniel, one of the disciples. The confessions themselves will be short and thus memorable. And it will be my desire that you and I memorize these three confessions over the next three weeks. Now, in doing all of this, we are not going to be using the traditional Christmas texts. We're going to be saving those for Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. So don't worry, we will get to those. But all three that we're looking at will come from the Gospel of John... Now, John, the writer of the gospel, is, of course, a different individual than John the Baptist who is going to be making this confession. And I'll just go ahead and say it. I'm confident I'm going to confuse the two at some point during this sermon. So just know that I do know that there is a difference between John the gospel writer and John the Baptist. Today we are in the first chapter, verses 29 through 35, where we hear John the Baptist call Jesus the Lamb of God. Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now, we're going to look at all of these verses, but the actual confession comes at the very beginning. The thing I want you to memorize, and I'm confident you can do it, is verse 29, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, before we get there, we've got to, of course, set the stage. And so we are starting this morning with the context of the confession. As is so often the case, the more we understand about what's going on surrounding a statement like this or any portion of Scripture, the better we can understand what the passage of Scripture means. And ultimately, that's what we want to do. We don't want to just hear the words. We don't even just want to memorize the words, though I am encouraging you to do that. We want to understand what these words mean and what it means to our life that Jesus is the Lamb of God. So our text begins with the previous day in verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus, so we've got to understand what happened on that previous day. If you know anything about John's gospel, you know that it begins with what we call a prologue, and it is one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture, a tremendous theological introduction to the person of Jesus. And then in verse 19, we have the first event, the first narrative of what's going on in the life of Jesus. And fittingly, it is a debate, if you will, between John the Baptist and some priests and Levites. They wanted to know who John was. And by implication, they're asking, who do you think you are? And where do you get the authority to baptize as you've been baptizing? John makes it clear that he is not the Christ. But he went on to proclaim that the Christ or Messiah was coming. And it was his job to point to that Christ. He was the forerunner who was preparing or paving the way. Look at his answer in verses 26 and 27. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Jesus was already among them. He was already circling through the crowds. But as yet, no one knew who he was, not even at this point, John the Baptist. Now, we are told that all of this took place in Bethany across the Jordan. This is a different Bethany than perhaps you are familiar with. There is a Bethany that is essentially a suburb of Jerusalem, just a few miles outside of town. It plays a prominent role in the Passion narratives because that's where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived and where Jesus stayed at the beginning of that week. But this is a different Bethany here, a place that we do not know the actual location, but it is across the Jordan, which means it is different. And it is a location that Jesus will return to later in his ministry. You can find that in John chapter 10. So that is the first part of the context, the previous day, but now the second part of our context, we see that there is a public witness. In fact, it is the first public witness. John's gospel has a lot of eyewitness testimonies. There are a lot of descriptions about what people saw when it comes to Jesus, and this is the very first one of them. It is the launch of Jesus' public ministry, the identity of that John is going to point to here for the first time. The question then becomes, to whom is John the Baptist making this public witness? It does not seem to be the priests and Levites who were there the previous day. They do not seem to be present on this day. It was not the disciples of Jesus who as of yet have not been assimilated. There are no such disciples as of yet. So perhaps it's just a general statement to Israel. The hidden Messiah is no longer hidden. The Christ whom we've waited 400 years for has finally arrived, and there he is. But more important for our purposes, this is ultimately a public witness to us. That indeed the Messiah has arrived, and that is what we celebrate at Christmas. All of which raises another question. How did John the Baptist know? And the answer to that question is largely what the majority of these verses are about. And so he says, thirdly, considering this context, that his knowledge comes from a preeminent source, which means his information came from God by divine revelation. John says, even I didn't know at first who he was. I was merely preparing the way. But then God revealed to him that when he saw the Spirit descend and remain, that would be the one. Now, it is important, as I've emphasized, to mention the Spirit remaining. Because it was common in Old Testament days for the Spirit to come and go. That is, the Spirit of God would rest on someone for a particular task. But when that task was completed, the Spirit would depart. But here we are told that the Spirit of God is going to come upon the Messiah, and that Spirit is going to remain. This, of course, took place at the baptism of Jesus, an event that John in his gospel does not record, but Matthew and Luke and the other gospel writers do. It is also important to hear John say in verse 30, that the one who is coming ranks above me because he was before me. Now, again, John doesn't give us the birth narratives of Jesus. Matthew and Luke do that, which is why Matthew and Luke are the traditional passages for Christmas celebration. And we know from those passages that Elizabeth was pregnant six months before Mary, which means, of course, that John was born six months prior to Jesus. But yet here John says that Jesus is above me, ranks above me, because he was before me. How can John make such a claim? Well, this is clearly an early statement of the eternal nature of Jesus. And thus the conclusion of these verses, this is the Son of God. That's not our confession for today, though that is another tremendous confession in these verses because we're going to save that one for next week when we're going to hear Nathaniel say the same thing. So when we celebrate the birth of Jesus, we are not rejoicing in his beginning. When we celebrate our own birthdays or the birthday of someone in our family, we are celebrating the beginning of their life here. Now, we might argue, of course, that their life actually began nine months prior to that. And that's true, and I understand that argument. But we are celebrating a birthday when that person was born. That is not exactly the case with Jesus Because he has eternally existed. So we are not celebrating at Christmas the creation of Christ. Because he is not created, he has existed forever. What we celebrate is the time when he became a man in order to identify with us and sacrifice himself for us, as we'll see in a moment. But at this point, we need to understand that this confession on the lips of John the Baptist did not come about by his own selection. He didn't take a poll and decide who is most likely to be the Messiah. He didn't look across the landscape of the people that were following him and find the best-looking, tallest, and perhaps the best communicator among the bunch. He didn't do any of those things because he was not the one who was selecting who the Messiah is. He makes it very clear that this was by divine revelation and yet this brings up another question a question that scholars have wrestled with some even concluding that this is inserted in the narrative by John the gospel writer and John the Baptist didn't really say it now we're not going to come to that conclusion of course because we believe in the inspiration and accuracy of the scriptures but before I give you the question I'll give you the answer and so in this context of the confession, we see that we have to acknowledge that there is a partial understanding. By that, I mean that John the Baptist did not fully understand this confession that he's making. He couldn't possibly have known everything that is in this particular statement. Now, let me explain. Again, this is very early in the ministry of Jesus. In fact, as we've said, This is the inauguration of his personal and public ministry. So given what we know later, how can John make such an astounding confession of faith prior to everything else? Jesus at this point has performed no miracles. He has taught nothing about himself. We certainly know that the other disciples struggled mightily when it came to understanding who Jesus was. They wrestled with the kind of kingdom that Jesus was going to inaugurate. They had a hard time grasping the kind of Messiah that Jesus was. We know that they often misunderstood what he said and sometimes even directly disagreed with the things he said and what he was going to do. In fact, sometimes we say that the disciples just never really did understand all this about Jesus until after the resurrection. It was not until they knew Jesus was alive that they finally began to piece together all the things that he had said during those three years. We know that in spite of Old Testament predictions and Jesus' own words, they had absolutely no place in their theology for a suffering Savior. Peter does make a great confession of faith later, But that's years into the ministry at Caesarea Philippi where he makes that great confession that that you are the Lord, the Christ. But then when Jesus begins talking about going to Jerusalem and there he's going to be arrested and die, Peter says to Jesus, I will not allow this to happen. That is not going to happen on my watch. Even John the Baptist, the author of the confession that we are examining this morning, When he finds himself in prison, when he himself is suffering for the ministry that he was involved in, he begins to doubt. And he says to some of his followers, go and ask Jesus if he's who who he says he is, or should we look for another? His own suffering had clouded his eyes about who Jesus was, leading some to say he could have never made this confession that we're looking at this morning. And yet there is another example of a partial understanding when it comes to the Scriptures. This time on the lips of an unbeliever. If we were to move forward later in the ministry of Jesus, responding to a plot to kill Jesus, Caiaphas said, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. And John the Gospel writer even says at that point that Caiaphas did not understand what he was saying. He had no idea of the full implications of that particular saying. His confession was true and accurate, but he simply didn't fully understand it. And I'm saying the same thing about John the Baptist. He made this profound confession that Jesus is the Lamb of God without fully understanding all that it meant. He couldn't possibly have known so early all that we know about who Jesus was and what he was going to do and the particular path that he was going to take. And yet again, this is divine revelation. God revealed to John this title and this purpose, and he faithfully made this confession. Which leads to our second point. Now that we have the context of the confession, we need to talk about the content of the confession. So we need to look specifically at the confession. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because again, our goal is a fuller understanding. I'm not sure we can ever fully grasp it, but we don't want a partial understanding. We want a much fuller understanding of what this confession means. So we're going to break it down into the three elements that we find there. And we are going to start with that first word, the word behold, And we are, first of all, going to see that we need to perceive his presence. That's what the word behold means. John is obviously saying, look, fix your eyes upon this. You need to see what I'm showing you. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, that the long-awaited Messiah has indeed arrived in our world. And as a result, we must stop and gaze at who he is. When I say that we need to perceive his presence, I'm not talking about a casual glance. I'm not talking about a momentary look. I mean, we need to have some concentrated effort that comes with thought. Because it's not just seeing someone, it is thinking about what his presence means. I say this just about every Christmas at some point, because I think it bears repeating We can easily crowd Christ out of our Christmas celebration. Though I am not accusing anybody of doing that on purpose, I think involuntarily we sometimes let that happen. And by that I simply mean that with all that comes along during this month, all of the things we have to accomplish, all of the events we have to attend, all of the trappings that surround Christmas, many of them very good, Many of them we enjoy, and yet it's possible that we can allow those things to make us so busy, we lose sight of the very one we are celebrating. So I'm encouraging you once again to not allow these other things to encroach or even override the Christmas message. So how can we avoid that happening? Well, we have to be intentional. We have to build time into our holiday schedule to gaze and to think to ponder what it must have been like to hear John say, there he is. That's the one I've been telling you about. That's the one we've been waiting for. Now, I realize that we weren't there. I realize that we cannot see that with our eyes, but we certainly can perceive it through eyes of faith. John says, he's the one I told you about yesterday. He's the one I said I'm unworthy to unlatch his sandals. Now, as you know, many people get all flustered and giddy when they see a famous celebrity or athlete. I mean, they immediately pull their phones out, right? In our day and age, we pull our phones out and snap pictures, hopefully even get a picture with whoever this person is, because after all, we want to document it forever. We want people to know that we saw this person and we want to brag about it to our friends and family and remember this event forever. And such encounters that take place in our lives on a, an occasional basis, maybe once or twice throughout our life, do not compare with John saying, behold, there is the Messiah. We need to pause and we need to gaze and we need to look upon the one who has come and perceive his presence through eyes of faith and know that he is with us and he is among us. Again, I realize that we cannot see him, but didn't Jesus say, I will never leave you nor forsake you? And so his presence is among us. But secondly, we need to perceive his person. Here is the second part of the statement. Behold the Lamb of God. Now, scholars debate exactly what aspect of the title John had in mind here when he made this particular statement, but we'll just look at several aspects and leave it at that. I'm confident you are aware that the imagery of lambs was very prominent in the Old Testament. John himself was certainly aware of that. His father was a priest in the temple, and as part of being a priest There were daily sacrifices of lambs. Every morning and every evening, a lamb was sacrificed as a picture of the fact that the people needed a scapegoat. And then we have the annual Passover celebration, something in chapter 2 that Jesus will attend, as no doubt he had done throughout his growing up years, but this time he's attending it the first time as part of his public ministry. But as part of that Passover celebration, There was many sacrifices of lambs. You recall what this was about. God was bringing the people out of slavery in Egypt. The night before they were to leave, he said to them, you are to offer up a lamb for each family, and you are to take the blood of that lamb, and you are to put it on your doorposts. And when that tenth plague comes that night, the, the plague of death, the angel of death arrives to kill the firstborn, that angel will pass over your house. You will not suffer death if you have the blood of the lamb on your doorpost. And this Passover celebration commemorated this every year, where thousands of lambs were killed in Jerusalem, which of course is where Jesus finds himself at the end of his ministry. Or we could turn to the wonderful prophecies in Isaiah, among others, foretelling the Messiah to be the lamb that was led to the slaughter. And though, as we've already mentioned, this aspect of Jesus' ministry was very hard for even his closest associates to grasp, in spite of the Old Testament prophecies that he would be sacrificed, they simply didn't get it. We know that the sacrificial lamb had to be without defect or blemish. And that, of course, was a picture of the purity and perfection that is found in Jesus. He alone qualifies as the lamb because he alone is sinless and pure. And I call your attention to the specifics of this confession. Behold, the Lamb of God, not a Lamb of God, because there is only one Lamb of God. He is unique and alone in this role and in this title. And I would also mention to you that this Lamb is victorious, he is not a victim. Many people these days want to play the victim to cry foul anytime anyone disagrees with them or gets in their way. Certainly there are many true victims in life, and it's always a difficult part to play. But Jesus is not a victim. He is not a victim to the Romans. He is not a victim to the Jewish authorities. For if we were to fast forward to later in his ministry, we would hear him say this. He tells his disciples repeatedly that he is going to Jerusalem and there he is going to give himself up. On trial, he says, I have the power to do this and no one has the power to take my life. Instead, he is willingly laying it down. Why, even on the cross, we know he said that he could call 10 legions of angels, but he chose not to. And then he proved himself to be the victor with his resurrection from the dead. So I want you to know that this is not a passive sacrifice led to the slaughter by others. This is an active sacrifice whereby Jesus willingly and voluntarily goes on our behalf. But why would he do that? Why would Jesus go through all that? Why not just become the Messiah that they wanted? Why not just fulfill the expectations of a conquering king in that very moment that they all expected and desired? Well, John answers that for us as well. Because we need to not only perceive his presence and his person, but the third part of that confession says we need to perceive his purpose. It's not enough to behold. It is not enough to even know who he is. We must also know what he did for us. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, I know you might not want to talk about sin at Christmas. But as I've said in the past, it is the reason for the season. For if we are not sinners, as so many people want to try and convince themselves, then there is no reason for Jesus to come and suffer and die. If we are not sinners, this is a colossal mistake. But because we are sinners, and that includes every one of us, we have a serious problem that we can't do anything about. And that problem is we are separated from God because of that sin, and there is no way we can atone for it nor redeem ourselves. We need the spotless and sinless lamb to die in our place, paying the price for our sins and satisfying the wrath of God for us. And that is exactly why Jesus came, and certainly something worth celebrating. We read the angelic message from Matthew's gospel earlier to Joseph, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now the way this is worded, back to our confession, it might have you questioning exactly what this means. Does Jesus take away the sin of everyone in the world? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Is this universalism, which is an erroneous belief that somehow, some way, everyone eventually will be saved? Surely we know that can't possibly be the case from the rest of the New Testament. There are countless other verses that tell us otherwise. And again, we sang this verse earlier, and I'll reference it. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He doesn't say everyone is going to be saved. He says those who believe in Christ. I'll give you another example. Again, you still have your Bibles open. We'll go back to the prologue, verses 11 through 13. John 1, verse 11. He came to his own and to his own people, They did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. Those who believe and receive. Now John, the gospel writer, is certainly not going to contradict himself so quickly, certainly not at all. But he's not going to say in the prologue that it is those who receive and believe who have the right to become children of God and then come down to this confession and say everyone is going to be saved. So whatever conclusion we come to when it comes to this confession, it is certainly not that everyone without exception has their sin forgiven by Jesus. Instead, I think the confession means that it's not just Jews who can find forgiveness in Christ. The Messiah did not come for a select group. He did not come exclusively to save Jews, but rather for all people. And so the saying here is that it is without distinction that Jesus comes to save. There are no barriers, no distinctions. He comes for all people. But that does not mean that everyone without exception will be saved. And that's why in the video we saw earlier, That we make such a great effort and spend so much money and personnel sending people all over the world because we believe that Jesus came to save people from all over the world. And that's a key difference that helps us maintain the witness of other scripture while also faithfully interpreting what John the Baptist said here. Now with that being said, the question then becomes, has he taken away your sin? Have you been one of those who have believed and received and found forgiveness in Christ? If you have not, then you can accept that grace and mercy this Christmas and find yourself among the number whose sins are forgiven. If you have already done that, then there is reason to rejoice because you can personalize the confession. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You can sort of tweak it a little bit and say, behold, the Lamb of God who took away my sins, who forgave me of my sins. I realize that you have a lot of things and people vying for your attention and time during this Christmas season. And most of that we can do very little about. I mean, many of those things we want to go to, others we are simply under obligation and we need to go to. But I am saying we need to make sure we carve out time to remember who Jesus is and why he came. You already have this confession memorized. I told you it was going to be easy. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You've already got that down. So what I want you to do is think about it over the next few weeks. When you see that manger scene, I don't want you to gawk at a baby I want you to say to yourself, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When you see that manger scene, I don't want you to focus on what animals are around there. I want you to say to yourself, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I close with a scene that is going to take place in the future. And yet we do not have to wait on the future to fully participate. In this scene, we can join in this Christmas. This is in the book of Revelation, where John is writing once again. And he said, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures and elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Father, we thank you that the Lamb of God has come. Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Thank you for providing salvation. May we not only accept it, may we rejoice in it this Christmas season. In the name of Christ I pray, amen. Let's stand and sing.